Metalea in the back and follow out our friends in the yellow shirts. Uh, the rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5. You guessed it. Romans chapter 5. A few more weeks here in Romans chapter 5 before we break for a little fall series and uh, Advent series. We'll come back to Romans 6 and 7 when we get to the spring. But if you want to open up your Bible to Romans 5, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 14. And you may think, hey, didn't we look at verses 12 through 14 last week? We did. Uh, but there's more here. There's more on the bone, and I want to get all of it off. Uh, and so we're going to be in Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. I didn't get a chance to say this, uh, but I do want to say uh, that for the nations, what the work that for the nations is doing in our community, I've seen it firsthand, and I'll tell you, I haven't seen anything else like it when it comes to loving and ministering to refugees. If you are looking to go more than words with your care and compassion for refugees, I could direct you to no better place in North Texas than for the nations. And I would commend them to you strongly, strongly, because I believe in what they're doing and have seen the fruit of it firsthand. And so, Cameron, thank you for being here, brother. Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. Years ago, my brother and I, we went to London uh, on a senior trip. And, and one of the most surprising things that we discovered was just how important the subway, or what they call the tube, was for getting around. We were just two, you know, redneck boys from Texas. We had never ridden in a subway before. And so we got there and quickly realized that just about everywhere that we went could be traveled to and from by this underground train. And I know that seems like a really small town thing to kind of be surprised by, but we were. We were just totally shocked by this. And we had never ridden the subway, and we learned so much about subway etiquette that week, uh, much to the dismay of the British people that lived there. Uh, they did not like answering our questions. Uh, but one of the things that you hear over and over in the London Underground is this phrase, mind the gap. Mind the gap. Just about every time that you're getting on or off a train, you're going to hear an automated recording say, or you're going to see a sign that says, mind the gap. And the phrase is used to signal to the rider that, hey, look, there's a little bit of a gap between where the train is and the platform. And if you're not careful, you can get your foot stuck in there or you can trip over it, which I did a lot. Uh, and so they're constantly reminding you, hey, mind the gap when you're getting on or off the train. And that phrase... Mind the gap. That's the phrase that I kept thinking whenever I was reading Romans 5, verses 13 and 14, as I was going into this week. This mind the gap idea. See, Paul is telling us in verse 13 and 14, mind the gap. Pay attention to the seriousness of the problem. Pay attention to see just how wide the chasm of sin, death, and separation is between us and God. And so in order to mind the gap, we have to look at three questions. The first is we have to ask, how bad is it? Just how bad is it? The second, what's the impact? And the third thing, what's the solution? So I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. We're going to really focus on verse 13 and 14 this week because I think there's something here for us to see. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just how bad is the problem? Just how bad 
is the separation? Just how wide is the gap? You know, in verse 13, we begin to hear that this problem is a problem of magnitude. It's huge. It's significant. Verse 13 says, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, that can seem confusing. Does that mean that God wasn't counting sin before the law? And this is one of the things that I wanted us to kind of explore today. There is so much confusion when it comes to the law in the Old Testament. The law, when Paul uses this phrase and when I'm using it today, I mean the first five books of the Old Testament. I mean the Torah. I mean what what we might call the Mosaic law. That's how Paul is using this word here, and that's how I'm going to use it today. This idea of the law, sin is not counted where there is no law. What's Paul saying here? Because it kind of seems like for a moment, are, are you saying, Paul, that between the sin of Adam in the garden and the giving of the law, there wasn't any sin? Well, that's not what Paul's saying at all. Because verse 14 is going to tell us that. But in this verse right here, he's walking us back through the history of redemption. He's pointing back to the very beginning of the Christian story, and he's telling us to mind the gap. He's trying to draw our attention to the problem. You see, last week we explored how sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. At the very beginning of the story, there is a fall. There is a tragic fall, and it occurs because of an act of spiritual rebellion from Adam and Eve against God. They saw God's kingdom, they heard about God's rule and reign, and instead of obeying God's word and God's law, they disobeyed God in an attempt to set up their own kingdom. That was the goal. Adam and Eve weren't just eating the wrong fruit from the wrong tree. They were rejecting God's kingdom in order to try and establish their own. That's what's happening at the beginning. And Adam was our representative. He was, the phrase we used was federal head. He was our our ambassador in front of humanity and our ambassador before God. He represented us. And when he failed, we all failed. And we're born in the stead, in the identity of Adam's failure. But see, when the law of Moses was revealed, sin began to be counted in a way that it had not been before. You see, in short, the law drew attention to a profound problem. The law drew attention in a unique way to the gap. The law was the automated recording of look at the problem, mind the gap, watch your step. You see, the law was a picture to the world of what God expected from his people and a call to obey it perfectly. But who could? Nobody. Nobody could measure up to the details of the law. You see, in the law of Moses, God makes explicit what had been implicit in kingdom, what had been implicit in creation. God took those things that had governed the creation of the world and he made them clear. And he said, if you're to follow me in a sin-sick and broken world, this is how you will have to do it. And no one could measure up. The law made it very clear that the bar for you and for me and for everyone, was too high. The goal was too high. Nobody was going to make it. Nobody was going to clear it. And this initially can sound cruel, right? Why did God give the law if it was just going to be a further depiction of just how desperate people were? Why would God introduce the law if it was just going to draw attention to the problem? Because God is like a good doctor. You don't always like what the doctor has to say, but you need him to tell you the truth, don't you? 
You need the doctor to tell you the truth. A good doctor will tell you the truth even if you don't like what they have to say about it. Why? Because they know that you can't begin to treat the problem until you see the problem. You see, the law was the x-ray machine for the problem of sin in the human heart. The law didn't create the problem, but it made the problem abundantly clear. That's what the law is doing. And that's what Paul means when he said sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Sin was there. Brokenness was there. Destruction and collateral damage as a result of spiritual rebellion was there. And yet the law made it clear. The law was an x-ray machine. Didn't create the problem, but it showcased the problem. And we have to mind the gap. We have to look at the problem. We have to realize just how desperate our situation is before we can begin to realize that we have no other hope but God and we can run to him in desperation and say, God, you must intervene. You have to save me because I can never cross this chasm. The gap is too wide. And it is. And the consequences, it's not just a stumble on and off of a subway platform. The consequences are far graver for this problem. Look at verse 14, because if the problem is this bad, well, what's the impact of it? Well, it's an even worse impact. Verse 14 says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. That, that language of reigning, we, I don't like the phrase death reigned. I don't want to hear about death's kingdom. I don't want to hear about death's rule. I don't want to hear about death's reign. I want to keep death as far away from me as possible. And for many of us, we're able to live and inhabit a world where we never have to think about death. Until we do, and then we want to spend as little time thinking about it and rush right out of it, right? We want to stay as far away from thinking about death as possible. And yet in verse 14, Paul can say that death reigned from Adam to Moses. See, it's not just important for us to mind the gap because if we don't, we will be found to be breakers of God's law. We have to mind the gap because the impact of this problem is nothing less than death forever. It's forever death. That's what the problem is. And what I'm about to say about this verse, I'll promise you right now, some of you are not going to like it. I've been praying this week about explaining this verse because this verse, even though many of us might answer the question the right way on the quiz, we don't like what this verse means. This idea of death reigning from Adam to Moses, look at the next little phrase there. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. See, Adam was our representative, and he wasn't just our representative. He was all of humanity's representative, past, present, and future around the globe. Everyone who has ever lived has been represented before God by Adam, and Adam's representation is bad. It's not good. It's not the representative you want. You do not want him standing in your place before God. You want a substitute, and you need a substitute, and that's where Paul's taking us. But before we get there, the impact of this sin was so great that it condemned to death even those who did not have God's law. You may think, well, like, hold on. What about all those people between Adam and Eve and Moses? What about all those people between the exile from the garden and the exodus from Egypt? What about all of those people? What about all of those people groups that we're meeting? 
about the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Parasites and the Jebusites? What about all of these other folks? What, were they culpable for Adam's sin? Yes. There is no third way in God's world. You are in Adam or you have flung yourself upon the mercies of Christ. That's it. There's no third option. You were under the rule of life in Jesus or you were under the reign of death in Adam. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that all of us, all of us, I'm talking about in this room right now, all of us need the gospel and no one more than another. We are all equally culpable for Adam's sin and in God's grace in Jesus, None of us are more redeemed than the next. We are all in desperate need of the gospel because we are all born under the reign of death. That's true for everyone in here, which means fundamentally, if you are not yet someone who has flung yourself upon the mercies of Jesus, there is no reason to wait. And I would beg you with the whole heart of this pastor who loves you to drop the mask and come to Jesus. Because it doesn't matter how many times you come here on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter how much time you serve. It doesn't matter how many Christian friends you have or what the legacy of faith is in your family's history. Christ and Christ alone is strong enough to break the chains of death and sin. That's what it means first for us. What does it mean for our community? Because it's incredibly easy for us to begin to live with apathy and indifference and forgetfulness to the reign of death in our city. Everyone you have ever met in this city that we love is either in Christ or in Adam. They are either liberated from death and brought into life or they are currently, not in a future state, not yesterday, not tomorrow, today, They are under the reign of death and subject to the wrath of God. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, even the best neighbors you have, even your favorite coworker, even your most loving friend and family member, if they have not taken hold of the grace of God in Jesus, there is nothing that can bring them freedom from the reign of death. And we We don't like that. Even if we agree to it, we don't like it. Because it means that we are everyday living in a world in which men and women, boys and girls that we encounter, are headed towards forever death apart from God. And it is a lot easier to live as if that's not true. Because it doesn't disrupt our sensibilities. We can interact with them as if nothing else is happening. And yet I have to tell you, something is happening always. Always. And there's good news. And you're hearing about it right now. And you've heard about it possibly hundreds of times. And the world is full of people who haven't been invited into it. And nothing breaks my heart like that. Paul's going to say later in Romans, chapter 9, verse 3, which we'll get to sometime in the next five years. 
He's going to say, for I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul gets this. Paul's saying, if I could, though I can't, if I could, I would give up my life in Jesus so that others could be freed from the reign and rule of death. Sin has had a universal impact. This is true for us. It's why the good news of the gospel is so good. It's true for our community. It's why the good news of the gospel is so necessary. And it's true of the world. Because let me just pan out. We've talked about us. We've talked about our community. But the impact of sin hasn't merely consigned us and those in our community who live around churches, who maybe live next to Christians, it hasn't merely consigned us here in Richardson to the rule and reign of death. No, sin has consigned the world. Do you know that right now there are people groups, many people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus? Never. Never. Nobody's ever come into their midst and said, let me talk to you about the good news of the gospel. Do you know that Missiologists, those who study mission, talk about the 1040 window. They talk about unreached people groups. I'm not talking about people who live within 10 miles of a church. I'm not talking about people who have the Bible in their own language. I'm talking about people who don't live anywhere close to a church. They've never heard the name of Jesus. The word of God is not in their language. They don't have 10 Bibles in their home because there's not one Bible in their language. These are people, and it is easy for us to live as if they don't exist. And when we think of them to think, well, yes, but they have not heard. And I have to tell you that the bad news of sin is that Everyone, whether they have heard the name of Jesus or not, is consigned to spiritual death forever by nature. Everyone. What does this mean for us when we talk about church planting, international missions? Do you know what it means? It, it's not just an abstract thing. It's not just something that we do. We don't just give money to it. There is an invitation from God to his people, scattered across the world to bring the good news of the gospel to every square inch of the world. And there are people, hundreds of millions of people, who have not heard the name of Jesus. They haven't. And I, I, I know we're here, and our lives are full. And I don't have a strategy for you. Like, I don't have, like, a logistics answer for how to do it, okay? But we have to live with that burden. I, I don't, we don't, I, I'm not rolling out a missions plan today. I'm not rolling out a hundred churches in a hundred years plan. I don't have something for you to do. But I have to be honest enough with you to say, we have to live with this burden, with this urgency. This was true of us, and now it's not. 
what do we do with that blessing? We give it away. We give it away. And there is a blessing here. How has this been changed in our lives? Well, Paul leaves us there at the end of verse 14. Because if the problem is this big and the consequence is this severe, then the solution has to be far greater. And it is. Because Paul in verse 14 says, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for the world? If the reign and impact of death is universal, if Adam's sin has condemned us all, who can save us? It will require a better Adam. It will require a greater Adam. It will require a new representative. It will require someone who will succeed where the first Adam failed. And this is precisely what Paul is telling us here. Paul is introducing something theologians call the Adam-Christ typology. Buried in this very technical way of argumentation is an incredibly liberating truth. See, a typology occurs in the Bible when a historical person, event, or institution foreshadows the coming Son of God. And what Paul is saying here is that exactly where Adam failed, there was a type who would come after him who would succeed. Adam was a shadow. He was a figment. He was a vapor trail. He was thin in all the areas where Christ is substantive. He was hollow in all the areas where Christ is filled. He was a failure in all the areas where Christ has been faithful. He was flawed in all the ways that Christ is perfect. You see, Jesus Christ is a better Adam. He's a new representative. He is a mediator, a new substitute, and we desperately need him. And the good news of the gospel is God graciously provides him. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come. And that for those who take hold of him and all of his representation, we now are free from the reign of death. This is a radically exclusive claim. Christians are not well-liked for their view on Jesus. Now, if Jesus is merely one way to God, well then, sure. It can kind of play well in the eyes of the world because he's an option. But he's not an option. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is radically exclusive. You can only come to God through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you think about God. If you are trying to love a God who has not revealed himself perfectly in Jesus, then you're loving a false God, and there is no salvation there. But in this radically exclusive claim is a radically inclusive reality, which is that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and who can come to God through Jesus? Anyone. What language do you speak? Doesn't matter. You can, come to G- you can come to God in Jesus Christ. Where are you from? God won't hold it against you. You can come to God through Jesus Christ. What have you done? God will forgive it and forget it. You can come to God through Jesus Christ alone. What has been done to you? God will cleanse it. You can come to God through Jesus Christ alone. What have you been culpable in? God will acquit you and he will do so in Jesus Christ alone. What bitterness are you holding? God will liberate you from it. Where? In Jesus 
Jesus Christ alone. What is your eternal destiny? God will change it, and he'll change it in Jesus Christ alone. This is a radically exclusive claim, but it's radically inclusive. Who can come to God in Jesus? All of those who cling to God in faith and say, grace, 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 I need grace. The condition of your salvation is a desperate heart and the willingness to put your faith in someone who will never fail you. You already know you're desperate. Will you trust them? The world already knows they're desperate. Will you invite them to trust him? Mind the gap is what Paul is telling us. Look at the depth of the problem. Why does he keep drawing our attention to the bad news? Because he knows that we easily forget the good news. Right? Newspapers know this. The algorithms know it. You're drawn to bad news. Paul knows it. Paul knows it. That's why he keeps pulling your attention to bad news. That's why he keeps drawing your attention to the desperate situation. He knows that nothing compels the heart faster than realizing we're hopeless. The world is broken. Our eyes are drawn to the train wreck of our heart, and yet in the midst of that, a Savior emerges. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus in praise. Maybe you've already clung to Christ in salvation. Run to him in praise. What do we do every Sunday morning? We run back to Jesus in praise. It's easy to forget it, right? I would wager that on Thursday of this week, between the hours of one and four, you'll find that your heart is forgetful yet again of the good news of the gospel that you'll celebrate today. And I could move that window really to any time in the normal course of life. And because our heart still has holes in it, where the goodness leaks out, it's easy to forget it. Every time we gather here, we run again to Jesus and we say, remind me. Help me remember. And then we run from this place like a prodigal son welcomed home, like a Samaritan woman forgiven forever. And we say, come and find salvation. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I don't know what you think the message of your life is, but I got news for you. God knows what it is. The message of your life is that the good news of the gospel has come and it has liberated you from the rule and reign of death. And the chief thing God has for your heart, for your mouth, is this. Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ who has delivered me and can deliver you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit for the power, the strength, the mercy of the good news of the gospel. We thank you, God, that you have sent a better Adam, a new representative, the substitute that we desperately need. And I pray that we would leave this place in praise and that that praise would overflow into proclamation to a watching world that Christ has come and that Christ is coming and today is the day of invitation. And pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me?